I'm sure you will have heard the saying, the only thing constant is change. It goes back to a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, well over 2,000 years ago. But it's true, it's as true now as it was then. And to the extent that in our current times to suggest anything else would be considered quite bizarre. Change is a basic part of life. Everywhere we turn, in our technology, the way we live, what we think is important, and most fundamental of all, the big ideas that underpin our whole culture. And it's this last one, I think, which is most contentious. Over the last 50 years, there have been two fundamental uh, points of change in this area. You could almost call them two great projects where the way we think and the way we live are being redefined. The first, we could call it the social project. And in that, what's acceptable in society is being rewritten around a secular, non-God-based view of the world. Think about the huge changes that keep happening in relationships, sexuality and marriage, just to name a few. The questioning, rejection and then enshrining in law of change after change, it's reconstructing life without a Christian understanding of what is good sitting at the core. Now, I'd better say at this point, I certainly don't think all the changes that have happened are wrong or are not necessary. That's not the case. But still, this defines the general direction that society is heading. The other major project is the remaking of the economy. And basically what's happening there is exactly the same as what's occurring to our social structures. We're applying post-Christian ideas to buying and selling work and money. And what's coming out of that is a much harder, less compassionate reconfiguring of how the economy works. Just as a side comment, you'll notice that along with each of these projects, there's a set of supporting pillars. There's a political party or two to enact the agenda. There's media outlets that support them and powerful spokespeople to ensure nothing gets in their way. And to a large extent, these two groups have focused on their own particular agendas, so neither of them gets much critique or backlash from the other, which I think, for our larger societies, uh, that's to our larger society's detriment. It would be helpful to be able to look at these two things at the same time, but it would be far too much for the time that we've got today. And so what I want us to look at is what a godly economy should aim to achieve. We'll only scratch the surface, but hopefully it'll still be helpful. Our first reading was from Leviticus 25, and thanks, Carolyn, for reading that. You did a great job on it. It's a part of the law of Moses. Now, I'm not sure if you've thought about how the Old Testament law is meant to work. Most importantly, the laws are not meant to be arbitrary. They're not just like a high jump bar whose sole reason for existence is to see if you can get over it. And let me tell you, I generally never could. A better example of how they work are the seatbelt laws for cars. 
I'm sure I've used this illustration before, but I think it's actually quite helpful. It's about why do we wear a seatbelt? Well, the obvious reason is so I don't get fined. But as I wear, keep wearing seatbelts, I've got used to wearing them. And so much so that if I hop into a car now and if I don't go click-clack, I feel naked and unsafe without it. So the law has actually changed the way I think, as well as the way I act. And it also makes me thankful that the law was enacted all those years ago, because obviously they were thinking about the, sort, the way that we work and the fact that we would need to have a law there and the threat of the fine to make us do that and learn, well, that's actually quite a good idea. That's how the biblical law operates. It's got an inherent goodness. And so if we give it a chance, it will change our actions and our characters and align them more with the character of God. So, to the law of Jubilee. I think this would have to be one of the most radical parts of the Old Testament law that you could find. One that would hugely reshape day-to-day life of the Israelite nation back then. It was fairly straightforward. Like There was a lot of detail there about in this situation and in that situation, but basically every 50 years land would be returned to the family to whom it was originally granted. And if the, for the Israelite equivalent of slaves, which were bonded labourers, they would be released and re- they could return to their land. It was a massive resetting of the clock every couple of generations and the community would start off again from a much more equitable situation. And then the passage gives an overriding principle not to take advantage of people and to care for those who fall into difficulty. All in all, it's quite a package. Now note what isn't being said. It's not saying that you can't do business. Profits could be made and wealth could be generated. On the other hand, Debt and bankruptcy were a possibility if decisions went bad. People could indeed lose everything and with results cascading through the family and into the future. But eventually, the jubilee would be reached and the clock reset. Big and continuing inequality could not be entrenched in society. It's an interesting model and it's fascinating when you compare it to what exists today, the choices that we have. It doesn't have the optimistic view of human natures that socialism has. It doesn't have the repression that seems to go along with communism. And it doesn't have the survival of the fittest brutality of unchecked capitalism. It cherry-picks personal responsibility, community care. And in addition, and totally outside of current thinking, I don't know if you noticed it, it builds in grace the idea that people, even if everything goes wrong, could have a fresh start and and begin again and try and rebuild. You might remember from a few years back the Make Poverty History campaign. Many developing countries were, and I, I should say still are, so enveloped in debt they had no hope of paying it off. And for banks and first world countries to continue demanding repayments, it just enforced an unending cycle of poverty and they'd still never get their money. Make Poverty History 
was a jubilee campaign. That's where the idea came from, to have debt cancelled. And a huge groundswell of support ensued. Church leaders pushed, rock stars such as Bono got on board. And amazingly, politicians came to the party. They responded. And the outcomes for some countries were quite extraordinary. From my understanding, in, in uh, Uganda, uh, debt savings were used to double primary school enrolments uh, in Mozambique. It allowed half a million people to be vaccinated against deadly diseases. These sort of things, they, this is self-funding through the debt relief that, that was provided. This is changing stuff. Jubilee allowed whole countries to experience restoration. It's not complete, it's not perfect, but still a result with much good embedded within it, very much in line with the original biblical intent of Jubilee. I'd now like to flick over to our Gospel passage from Luke 12 on page 847. And the chapter begins, as we read, with Jesus' teaching, and it said a crowd of thousands had gathered to hear. It must have been quite a sight. And what does Jesus say? We read some of the words. Do not fear those who can kill the body and after that do nothing more. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yeah, I tell you, fear him. The point isn't that God's going around killing people. There's a, a, rhetor a rhetorical flourish building to a point. And instead it's saying, respect God, because he's the one who has got serious power over life. Do that rather than worrying about the trivialities. Don't run after what everyone else is running after. It's a big call to get one's priorities right and to put God first. Those words had hardly stopped reverberating around the crowd when something quite bizarre happens. Someone comes up to Jesus and attempts to pull him into a family dispute, to arbitrate on family inheritance. You could imagine Jesus just sort of pausing, looking at him, perhaps somewhat perplexed, and then saying, didn't you hear anything of what I've just been saying? Although I think, I'm sure Jesus handled such moments with far more aplomb than I ever could. Um, but this man is so preoccupied with his family grievance and the greed of getting what he sees as his due that the shutters have come down and he's missed the point entirely. We see such things around us all the time. When I was working for St Peter's, I'd often meet with grieving families, say they may have just lost a father or someone like that. But So often you would hear about the retirement project like they'd been working for years towards the ground, grand round Australia holiday, working, saving, maybe even building the camper, all done with such focus that it becomes their whole purpose of living, only to have it snatched away moments before the trip was to happen. And that's really the sort of thing we're seeing in the parable there. The man has done well, and that's, that's not being called into question. It's his attitude from there on. He hoards his grain and he devises ever-increasing structures to hold his ever-increasing wealth, all so that he can pat himself on his back and slide into a life of material excess. 
And in a society that was meant to have a jubilee level of compassion and care, he had more than missed the point. And it bounces back onto this other guy, the one to whom the story was uh, being told. He had ignored God and all the substitute wealth that he'd had and that he was after and clutching for from the other members of his family all added up to nothing. A deeply sad story about the poison of greed and getting life so, so wrong. Now, trying to apply such passages to our lives today is, I describe it as easy and hard all at the same time. Greed is all-pervasive in our society and the greed is good motto is still the motto of our times, even if it's a bit unfashionable to admit it. What the Jubilee Law shows is that people and relationships come first. Another side comment, Margaret Thatcher was wrong. The basic unit of society is not the individual. It's the individual in relationship with others, and that difference is utterly crucial. Embedding godly characteristics in a society comes before the right to build bigger barns. Again, this is not socialism. It's working towards a relational society where our economy serves that purpose and gives an avenue for compassion and grace rather than the other way round. We don't want the tail wagging the dog. For many of us, I suspect the greed of good perspective slides unnoticed into our attitudes. We'll downplay it somewhat compared to society at large, but it's, it's still there. And I think at a personal level, it's where we need to start with this, rejecting the social cues for having to fill our lives with stuff and instead to rely on God. For he will give to each of us all that we need. God is utterly reliable and we can turn to him continually for that. Compassion is important too. Through our charity but more so by incorporating that into the thinking of all our choices, not using our buying power to force for the cheapest price. Because if you look at where that ends up, well, you need to care for those who you do business with, right back to the ones who make the goods. The harder component is how to enact wider change. For if these principles reflect God's character, then everyone will benefit from them, won't they? So we need to be thoughtful, to be working through those ideas in terms of our society today. What would be important? What would actually change things? We need to then be canny about how we present them to others and then lobby our governments to desire to implement better change. Think about the the biggest economic issues of of the generation I actually mentioned to one of my daughters last night that I was um, uh, preaching on this topic and she actually reeled off immediately the issues that were there. Uh, it, was quite, it was interesting just how forward they were in, in her thinking as soon as sort of the word economy comes out. What are they? Well, to start with, um, 
the ones that are causing the greatest damage in our present time, third world poverty, remains huge. It's exacerbated by our system of international trade. That continues as a problem. Within our own country, the ability to buy a house if, uh, if you're in a capital city and youth unemployment there too, I'm sure you can think of more. If we put relationships first, how would we deal with these issues differently? Rather than ignoring them and letting them just fester away like a weeping sore. The final aspect I want to raise is why. Why does this all matter? What, do, what does this all have to do with God and with us as Christians? Surely we should do just what secular society tells us. We should serve God privately and just let the world get on and deal with it. Deal with itself as it likes. Uh-uh. Back in the Jubilee passage, the recurring reason was given for the Israelites to do this, and that was for them to fear God. That was the reason. And that is really a shorthand. It's a flag that takes us back into the story of God saving humanity. Because just like the people in the Bible there and what they were faced with, we, uh, we have rejected God rather than fearing him as well. Our society has. It takes many ter- forms. And in terms of our today's topic, greed, repression of others at one end, to apathy and lack of care for what we consume and where it comes from at the other. We're so willing to leave God out of the picture and to further our own lives on our own terms. And yet even amongst this, God has reached out to us. In sending Jesus, God has lived amongst us. He knows the hardships. He knows what happens. He knows the way our societies work. And yet he still reaches out to us. But then he goes one step further. For as Jesus willingly went to the cross... He was killed so that we could receive life. We may be like that in our natures, but we can be forgiven. God brings us that through Jesus, the ability to leave our old self behind and to start again, living as God has called us to do. We can have a new beginning. We can start again. We can be in closeness and friendship with God forever. And it is the offer that God makes to each of us. So he invites us, calls us to recognise the failings, our failings, and to come back to him. I spoke before in terms of projects. God has a project too, where God intends to change us and to remake our lives, but he wants to take that further and for that change to remake the world as well. We think about that often in terms of heaven, And while the fullness won't come until Jesus returns, we are to be a part of this process now so that all may experience the joys of his kingdom and see the value of living his ways and the goodness inherent in what God gives to each of us. It's like the seatbelts. There is a goodness that we can experience and treasure as we live for God and live as he's made us to be. So to finish, God calls us to be holy and to serve him first, to seek his forgiveness and to be changed. God's priorities will radically reshape our lives. We should desire to see that happen and to see that goodness flow 
out into our community and the world. It will impact on our habits, our spending patterns, our business, even the role of government. And don't swallow the line that God has nothing to say to our world and how it conducts its affairs. Because he does and it matters. And so, live for God in all that you do. Amen.